Welcome to It's Pretty Personal, a podcast all about sharing South Asian stories. today it's been a while since i've taken this mic off it's definitely got some dust on it and recorded an episode but the last few months have been a bit of a roller coaster and if i could describe it in one word it would be busy but i'm back and regular episodes will resume so to kick things off today we're talking all about diet exercise and wellness with dr sarah hamid Dr. Sarah is a consultant endocrinologist with a subspeciality in obesity medicine at Imperial College London, where she designed, developed and trialed the highly effective Imperial Stat Pro weight management program on which her book, The Full Diet, is based on. And The Full Diet is her first book, which is a weight loss program that distills the latest science of metabolism and appetite into clear, actionable advice, from choosing foods that keeps us fuller for longer to understand the connection between our gut and our brain. The Full Diet will transform readers' health using cutting-edge science as a weight loss tool. Something really cool that I really enjoyed about in this book was that at the end, there's loads of different recipes and meal ideas, which I need personally because... The exercise thing, I have it down. I'm really good at that bit. But a lot of times I don't know what to eat or what's good for my body. So those recipes at the end of the book are actually really handy when I'm meal prepping or going grocery shopping. And you know, a girl loves a good grocery shop. So if you find this episode interesting and you want to get a copy, I've linked it down below where you can buy one. And also want to say a special thank you to We Are Media High for connecting us and giving me the year eight science lesson that I wish I had. If you want to know more about Dr. Sarah or The Full Diet, check the episode description down below where all the links to her social media are down there. And whilst you're there, don't forget to follow me on social media too. Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at Pretty Personal. If you love listening to It's Pretty Personal, then don't forget to rate or write a review and you can do that on Spotify and Apple podcast and if you find this episode insightful or educational don't forget to send it to a friend okay so let's get into it hi Sarah. hi pretty thank you so much for having me on honestly the pleasure is all mine i just want to say congratulations on your first book the full diet and it being on the sunday times best-selling author list how do you feel about that gosh totally blown away I'm so grateful for everybody's support. It's a lovely, lovely adventure. So thank you so, so much for your good wishes. So before we actually dive into what we want to talk about today, which is around diet, fitness, living a fuller lifestyle. And honestly, I feel like this is more of a science lesson for me because there's so much around diet, fitness, exercise that I absolutely love. Like I've definitely changed my lifestyle in the last couple of years as well. And I want to know more about it. But then I think growing up within our cultures, food is a massive thing. So growing up, did you have like your favorite desi food that you loved? That's a really good question. So, you know, I think if I'm really partial to something, it's got to be the breads. So really fresh, home cooked, smells so good, warm, comforting. I think to me, those breads kind of smell and taste like home. I think mine is like dessert. I have such a sweet tooth. You know how it's always like the dessert buffet, like gulab jamun or jalebis or just like the really like sugary stuff. I love that. And then I think also just like really simple stuff like dal. Like growing up, I loved yellow dal. I think that was like my favorite thing with yogurt. You know when you have like a one food item that kind of feels like home to you and you can have it all the time. I think that is mine, like yellow dal and yogurt. Do you have one? 
Well, I think I have something similar because um, my dad is an amazing cook and he cooks a particularly good dal. We're kind of talking about how food is, is more than food. It's about home. It's about family. It's about memories. And definitely dal would be one of my kind of go-to dishes. If I'm feeling poorly, that will always just have such a source of nurturing effect on me. So I agree with you that dal is a real yummy go-to. And that is on the full diet. So we can definitely promote dal. Nice to know. And then just like growing up in general, like, did you have desi food quite often or not really? Bit of a mixture. My dad is from uh, UP originally, from Lucknow in UP. My mom is British, so we're a mixed household. So for that reason, I think we had quite a diverse array of food. You know, we had desi food, we had traditional English food, sometimes both on the table at the same time. So yeah, it was a really kind of rich upbringing when it comes to food. Some of your listeners who are familiar with, with Lucknow will know it's an absolute kind of food capital of that part of the world. As I mentioned, my dad loves food and cooking. So we were really, really, really lucky that we were brought up knowing about food, we were cooking. You know, that's an amazing thing to pass on to your kids. And talking about food, diet exercise is, like I said, something that a lot of us have kind of like taken very seriously. Diet culture is massive. And we're always told, live a healthy lifestyle, do this, do that. And there's so much information out there that sometimes it can be so overwhelming to the point where it's like, I don't know what to eat because person A is saying this and person B is saying that, but who do I believe? I just want to kind of know what can people do and really understand the basics. And that's kind of what your book does as well. I guess my question is like, if someone does want to start this whole like healthy lifestyle journey, where should they start? So I think the first thing to do is to decide that you want to make a change. And that's your decision. And normally people want to make a change because there's something about business as usual that's not working for them. And it might be about weight, but it might be about overall health, maybe of a condition that is related to lifestyle like type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. Or maybe just day-to-day life doesn't feel comfortable. You don't have energy or your mood is low, bloated when you eat and so on. So firstly, I think you have to decide that this is important for you and it's the right time. And I think you're absolutely right that lockdown had really shone a light for lots of us about sort of making that inward assessment and deciding, actually, we're not happy with business as usual. And now we have a bit more time and space to kind of try and get things in order. I think the second broad principle is keep it simple. Because as you say, there is a huge amount of information out there. And it gets really, really confusing. What I mean by keep it simple is let's look at how our grandparents ate or our great grandparents, depending on your age. They didn't have apps or calculators or protein shake. I don't think my grandma would have known what a carbohydrate was or a calorie was because that's not how people used to eat. And then I think we also have to reflect that people in the past, those past generations, did not on the whole struggle with their weight and enjoyed much better health than we do today. So rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, saying the problem is I don't have the right app or the right equipment, or I need to have this much protein and this much carb, and I need to plug it into some sort of special software for it to tell me what to eat. Why don't we just take a step back and say, how have humans eaten for most of human history? Well, they've eaten food. They haven't been caught up on this many grams and this many calories and all this sort of thing. And the second thing is they ate food and not ultra-processed food. So this is where we have really changed our consumption compared to past generations. So I think another sort of really big question for people to think about is 
am I eating food or am I eating sort of substances pretending to be food? So what I mean by that is if you go into any supermarket, go into a supermarket today, tomorrow, you look around and it's like, whoa, there's so much choice. Isn't this amazing? It's 2022, so much to choose from. You look at the packets, they're the same combinations of the same ultra-processed ingredients, about 80% of the products, emulsifiers, artificial sweeteners, thickeners, etc. And put it quite simply, the human body was just not designed to eat that kind of food. It doesn't matter if the packaging says it's plant-based and heart-healthy and all this sort of thing. When you look at the ingredients, I just say to my patients, if your brain, which is brilliant, doesn't understand what that food is, don't expect your body to know what to do with it. So if we apply these kind of simple, straightforward approaches, we can already start to make some changes that feel intuitively like they make sense. So that's kind of where I ask people to start from who are not happy with business as usual and think, yeah, I do want to make a change. It's these sorts of thoughts that I encourage my patients to have. That's actually so true because I think a lot of people do say that. It's like people have been eating food for generations and generations. And now we're in this generation where there's so much variety. And we are the generation with the most information. You say that we have all these apps. So then my question is, is tracking calories actually healthy for us? In my book, and the advice I give my patients is some good news. So I say, you know, lots of people come to my clinic, a very highly specialized NHS weight loss clinic, and they have an encyclopedic knowledge of calories. You could show them 100, 200, 300 different foods, and they will tell you the caloric value. And so I tell them this good news really early on. I say that information is of no use to you. Forget that information and use your really precious brain space for something far more important. You go learn an instrument, go learn a new language. Because the problem is that when you take this calorie-based approach, firstly, it tells you nothing about the quality of the food that you're eating. So you can eat 100 calories of a boiled egg, ingredients egg, or you can eat 100 calories of some sort of low-fat diet yogurt, which is going to have 20 different ingredients, a lot of them a bit odd. So 100 calories in both foods, but one is a natural whole food that humans have eaten for tens of thousands of years, and one has been created by food engineers. And for many, many reasons I describe in my book, just simply doesn't work for your body. And your body protests with bloating or energy slumps or headaches or however it is that you respond to that food. So the first thing is that calories tell us nothing about how the body is going to respond to a particular food. The second issue is that if you go on a low-calorie diet, so let's say I want to lose weight, I'm a woman, and I'd be advised, you know, cut your calories down to 1,500 calories a day. So that's fine, I'll do that. I've got my app, I've got my notebook, I'm I'm ready to go. When I go on this low-calorie diet, because I'm kind of semi-starving myself, my body needs more than 1,500 calories. The body doesn't realize I'm doing this voluntarily because for most of human history, the problem has been lack of food, not an abundance of food. So as soon as I start semi-starving myself on this low-calorie diet, the body goes into what's called the starvation response, which has been developed through evolution to keep us alive when there was no buffalo around or, you know, when there was no berries on trees. So what happens is you develop this hormonal response called the starvation response, whereby you're hungry all the time. You're not full or satisfied by the food that you eat. You're quite preoccupied by thoughts of food, can't go to sleep. Uh, you, eat, you eat your lunch and then you're thinking, what's next? What's next? And you can't work and you're sort of going to the fridge and opening it and closing it and saying, no, I mustn't. And you're having all these sort of willpower type battles. But we know ultimately your willpower is not going to be able to overcome your know, tens of thousands of years of evolution and this drive to keep you alive and this drive to find food. 
So ultimately, it is very, very hard long term to stick to a restrictive low calorie diet, which is why I say forget the word calorie. And my patients do. And we never, ever talk about the word calorie. My patients lose on average as much weight as someone who's had a gastric band. So that probably speaks volumes as to where calories haven't worked for people, but also how we can take a new and a fresh approach whereby you don't need to know about calories. You don't need to write anything down or weigh anything or read food packets. And you can still get fantastic outcomes. But now you're working with your biology. So you're not in this semi-starvation mode. You feel good. You eat food. You feel full. You move on with your day exactly like our grandparents used to. That's amazing. And the whole idea of like diet and exercise, it's a lifestyle change. It's making sure that we are changing our lifestyles and to make it sustainable. And I think sometimes that's the most difficult thing. It's like, how do we make it sustainable? Exactly right. So rather than saying I'm on this for two weeks before I go on holiday or two months before some big family wedding that you know people want to look good and that can be a major motivation for people wanting to lose weight but at the same time if you take that approach and you think well I'll get through the wedding or I'll get through the holiday and then I just sort of go back to how it was well kind of a waste because you'll regain the weight you're not going to feel good about things and maybe the symptoms you were having before will come straight back you know acid reflux or the disrupted sleep or whatever it was that was bothering you weight very rarely happens in isolation so very rarely people come to my clinic and say my only problem is weight other than that I feel fantastic it doesn't tend to happen mostly the weight travels with other symptoms and conditions so it would be a shame to lose weight temporarily and then to kind of go back to square one so then how can people mentally train themselves to make it sustainable? So I think the first thing is to understand how your body works. You need to go back to first principles. So rather than giving over responsibility, as we were saying, to apps or you know other things, actually to understand if I eat this particular food, this is what it does to my body. So I'll give you an example. This is from chapter one, which is if I eat roti, you mentioned roti at the start, that carbohydrate is made up of glucose sugar building blocks. And so your body within 30 to 60 minutes will break it down into glucose, into sugar. That sugar will enter your bloodstream and the amount of sugar in your blood goes up. And your body doesn't like having excess sugar in the blood. It doesn't function well with tons and tons of sugar swilling about in the blood. So you produce this hormone insulin. Insulin will move that sugar out of the blood. Blood sugar goes back down to normal. Great. But insulin has to push that sugar somewhere. It can't just make it magically disappear. Some of that sugar ends up in your liver as a fuel tank, as storage. Some in your muscles, your biceps, your triceps. Next time you carry shopping or you run for a bus, you can use that sugar. But any excess, insulin will push that excess sugar into fat storage. So when you ask that excellent question about how do I then make my choices, what my program is designed to do is to make you the expert so that I understand this is what roti does. This is what having a boiled egg does. And then I can make the choice because ultimately it's not for somebody to wag their finger at you and tell you what to do. Once you know all the information and my book sets it out very clearly, the science of how your body works, the science of how you gain weight and lose weight, then you can decide. But you've got to know the basic biology before making that choice. When you say understanding your biology, I think metabolism is a massive thing. And this is something I really, really want to learn. Can we talk about what a metabolism is and get rid of some of the myths behind it? So all metabolism really means is how your body uses fuel. You can think of your metabolism, I'd say this in my book, as being maybe a bit like a wood-burning stove. So you put fuel in, in the case of the wood-burning stove, it's the logs. 
And the metabolism is how your body sort of processes and uses that fuel in order to drive the body and to make sure all its processes happen properly. Lots of people come to my clinic, my specialist NHS weight loss clinic, worried that they have a slow metabolism. They say, I understand that, you know, I must have a super, super slow metabolism. I don't think I eat that much. In our research study, we measured people's metabolisms before they took part in this program. We didn't find people had overly slow metabolisms. What we did find is when they learned about their body and they learned about food choices and they learned about things like exercise, sleep and stress management and so on, they lost weight just like everyone else. So then is metabolism hereditary? So like if someone has a fast metabolism, is that based on genetics? It's a good question. I mean, metabolism reflects lots and lots of different things. It reflects what you're eating, how much you're eating, what your current body weight is, time of day, how much activity you do. So there's lots and lots and lots of different things. Weight is highly heritable. So people who say, I come from a big family, I never had a chance. Weight is as inherited as height. So we all understand that tall people come from tall families and short people come from short families. And that's kind of taken as as red. Weight shows that same degree of heritability. But again, that does not mean that everything's hopeless, absolutely nothing I can do. Because while weight does travel in families, we know, and if you look at a family photo album in the 60s or the 70s, you will find almost nobody in that family photo album has a weight problem. I'd say pretty new. I bet you've leafed through your family albums. You know, as a kid, that was my, one of my favorite hobbies was looking through these. Oh, I, I still love doing it. I love going down memory lane. Yeah, I love it too. I love those pictures, you know, the flares and the cars and like, it's just such good fun. And it's only now later on as a doctor, as a researcher, that it's occurred to me that nobody in these photos has a, has a weight problem. So what it tells us is while in the family, there might be weight gain genes, there is something about the modern food environment that has pulled the trigger on those genes. So yes, the genes play a part, but they don't doom you. I know that you said that like genes play a part. And I think that's something that I've also really realized is we were talking about social media. It was saying how like there's almost this pressure, especially with my generation, to look a certain way. There's a certain body image that you have to hit. Sometimes people can't physically do that. I'm someone that is curvy and I have big hips. I cannot get into a body size that is thick thin, for example, which growing up in the 2000s, that's all I saw. And I always felt like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't attain that beauty standard, for example. You've hit the nail on the head. It's it's highly genetically determined body shape. And even when people lose weight, they will lose weight from a very specific place. And it's not all over weight loss. You know, some people will lose more weight on their tummies or their chest. You're right. This unobtainable perfection, let's call it. I call it an inverted commas because I don't actually think it's perfection. Puts a huge amount of pressure on people. As you very rightly say, is you're going to be fighting your biology, probably not succeeding because biology is pretty clever to try to obtain that. And then, of course, that takes its toll on self-confidence and self-esteem. It's really, really, really tricky. I think what I'd say is, and I hope your listeners find this, that when they read the book, you end up, and my patients say this, having a a new respect for your body. Your body is absolutely brilliant. I've been a doctor for over 20 years, and every day I learn something new about the human body. And I think, my goodness, no Apple or Tesla or NASA 
could invent a machine this brilliant and this clever. And the more you understand about your body, the more you realize it's clever and it's brilliant. And that doesn't mean having a six pack. When you develop that respect for your body, you develop an inner ease where you actually feel like I'm okay because I have this body moves and talks and walks and thinks brilliant thoughts. Going back to like what you said, I think it's like this whole piece about learning to love yourself as well. And I think that's really similar to like what you said, like, like you said, our bodies are amazing. Like when we actually like deep it a bit, we can run and we can walk and we are actually very able-bodied people. Like there are people out there who are not as able-bodied as us. Like you said, I think our bodies are like a massive machine and I'm kind of on this journey of kind of understanding it because unless I study about it, I don't know how to talk to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's the thing. The more you learn about it, I think the more respectful of it. And that's not really to do with how it looks or how it looks in a photo and much more to do with, you know, this is my brilliant body and it's carrying me through my life. Now, that doesn't mean you don't look after it. As I say in the book, if you owned a state-of-the-art sports car, my gosh, you'd be buffing it, cleaning it, parking it in some special garage, of course, always putting the right fuel into it. So I think we must look after our bodies so that they feel like a comfortable place to live. But that doesn't mean looking a certain way at all to do with aesthetics. You know, it's, you know, obviously I'm a medical doctor and my interest is people's health, their long-term wellness and well-being. I tend to find that when they make those changes, they feel good inside and that's enough. None of us are ever going to be insta-perfect. I feel like you're never going to be insta-perfect because the finish line keeps changing. Yeah, I think it's also up to us whether you want to be in that race. You know, there is a sense of relief when sometimes you just take a step back and you say, you know what, I'm okay. I think that's like the whole thing. I think like weight and diet, exercise, a lot of that plays a massive part in our confidence as well. I think I mentioned to you before, growing up, I've always struggled with my weight. I ended up getting a nutritionist in 2020. And I kind of was a bit like very much like when I was a teenager, tracking my calories, checking the scale. And I kind of had this like reshift of my mind. And I kind of was a bit like, I just want to feel healthy. Like I just want to feel strong. And if I can lift two massive grocery bags from the car into my kitchen, or if I can run for the bus and not get tired, those are big wins for me. Those pretty are much, much better measurements of your health than necessarily a scale or what an app tells you, what a fitness tracker buzzes on your wrist to give you some new information about. If you can carry out your daily activities like carrying heavy bags of shopping, going up the stairs, running if you need to, getting a good night's sleep. You can do all those things. You're probably a healthy person. And as I say, you know, let's keep it simple. We don't need constant bings and bongs and pings to tell us, you know, and I'm not anti-technology at all. I love technology. There's some technology in medicine that I think is, is absolutely game-changing. I think in this particular space, it can just add to levels of confusion that make it very difficult for people. I agree. And I feel like we need to change the metrics. It shouldn't be like you need to be 55 kilos, you need to be 60 kilos because everyone's body is so different. I feel like the metric series seriously should be like, can I carry two bags of shopping? Or can I climb up two flights of stairs without getting out of breath? Like, I think that's just so much more fun. 
I absolutely say that in my book. I'm so on the same page as you because I say, if you're going to track your progress, the scales don't work for everybody. So maybe you want to track, how am I feeling? Do I feel more like socializing? Is my mood brighter? Is my sleep better? As you say, can I run up the stairs? And these sorts of things can be a really important way of tracking things over and above, as you say, am I a particular number of kilos? But again, there are many, many other ways to know if you're healthy. And people, I think, instinctively feel whether they're healthy or whether, as I mentioned at the start, whether business as usual isn't working. Yeah, I think like you also mentioned quite a few other things in your book. Like, for example, this whole idea of being kinder to ourselves. And I can 100% say that I am my own worst critic. I am sometimes very hard on myself and I put myself on a higher standard than everybody else. And I noticed that. And I think there's also a diet exercise as well. Like, oh my God, I have eaten something. So now I'm going to fall off the wagon and I'm just going to eat chocolate for the rest of the days and I'll start tomorrow. How can we just be a little bit more kinder to ourselves and be like, it's okay? I think you're absolutely right. You know, we're in control of that internal dialogue. We're the only ones that can change it. Sometimes we feel that we're waiting for some external validation, like a promotion or a new relationship or, or something that says, yeah, you're okay. Actually, people find that that external validation doesn't really impact on that internal negative chatter if that's the habit. So I have lots and lots of strategies in my book for changing that internal conversation, building a bit more self-compassion, particularly when it comes to eating. Because as you mentioned, we really, really hard on ourselves. You know, started off the day with great intentions. I wandered into the coffee room at work. I was a bit bored. There was a cookie there. I ate the cookie. And then you say today's a bad day. So you went from having a good day, it was a good day, to now today's a bad day. And all bets on eating are off. It's a bad day now. So I might as well have three more biscuits from the platter because today's a bad day. I'll start again tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a good day. And actually, what I say to my patients is firstly, people who live at a weight that they're comfortable with do not have that mentality about good and bad days. And sometimes they might eat a biscuit just because it happens to be there, a bit bored or, you know, they're hungry, but they haven't had time for lunch. But then they just say, well, I had a biscuit and they move on with their day. And that's the huge, huge difference between people who tend to live quite comfortably with their weight and people who are in this endless kind of dieting mentality. I'll give you an example. Let's say two days a week are bad days. So... You're then wasting, not you, I'm not going to say you, we're then wasting two-sevenths of our life writing days off. That's a lot of time that we're wasting. Whereas if you could just say, that was a misstep, that was a glitch, I didn't mean to have the biscuit, to get on with the day. I mean, life is so precious. Good days and bad days. Wow, that's a lot of, it's a lot of time we're wasting for something as inconsequential as a biscuit. I mean, I'm not encouraging people to eat biscuits. You know, you've read in the book that they're not the kind of preferred eating option. But if we eat them, you know what? Move on. Be kind to yourself. Today is still a good day. And then this is something that I'm very, very curious about. So we spoke a lot about getting to know our bodies. But say if I actually did eat lunch, like say if I had a sandwich for lunch, how does my body break down that sandwich? <laughs> Well, it's a good question. Tell me what's in the sandwich. So let's go for a very standard chicken salad sandwich. Okay. 
Bread, like we spoke about, is going to be broken down into glucose building blocks. So that sugar is going to hit your blood. And unless you need that sugar right away, you're about to go for a walk or you're going to hurry to the next meeting or something. Most of that sugar, once a little bit's gone into your liver and a bit's gone into your muscles for storage, for fuel storage, most of that sugar is going to end up in fat storage. That's the bread. Most of the bread that we eat today is not bread as our grandparents would recognize it. So bread used to be sort of flour, water, yeast, and salt. If you get a sort of mass-produced sandwich, which I think you're kind of alluding to, the kind of grab-and-go type sandwich. Yeah, like let's assume it's a meal deal from Tesco's. And you read the ingredients for that bread, and you come back to the idea of that this ultra-processed food, because it's going to have more than those four standard ingredients that our grandparents would have recognized. It's going to have, you know, flavor enhancers and additives and preservatives and bleaches and all kinds of things, which again, we come back to the question, well, if you have the expensive sports car, are you going to be putting those dodgy things in or are you going to get the very, very best fuel you could find, you know? And then you talked about having the chicken. Well, the chicken's actually a pretty good choice because when you eat protein, your gut recognizes the protein and your gut will send a fullness hormone signal from your gut to your brain. It says there's food on board. You know, there's, 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 there's fuel has come in. You can stop eating. And that's why, you know, if you eat protein like chicken or an omelette, you feel nice and full. Now, if you were to have said to me, actually, it was a jam sandwich, that's completely different because you wouldn't get that nice fullness hormone because jam is not protein, it's just sugar. And so again, that excess sugar will end up in your blood and insulin will push that sugar out of your blood and ultimately you'll end up in fat storage. So I hope that helps to answer you to your question that, you know, having a sandwich for lunch, if we're thinking about weight, we're thinking about blood sugar control, if people have diabetes or pre-diabetes, or you're just thinking about general health because you're thinking, I'm not sure I want to eat those odd chemicals that are going to be found in most mass-produced sandwiches. I think that's just the standard, right? Or in the office, you have like half an hour between meetings. It's like, what is the quickest thing I can eat? Sandwich. <laughs> So I think the way to reframe that, and I have this conversation a lot with my patients, they're really, really busy people. Some of them are working two jobs. They've got families. They've got a ton of commitments. They, they don't have a lot of time on their hands. But we do say that it's really difficult when you're out and about, when you're at lunch, to find something quickly, easily, that's going to be a great choice for your body. So I really encourage my patients to carry their lunch to work. Not only do they save a great deal of money, because you know when you get sandwich and the drink and maybe the crisps or the bar or whatever that goes with it, that might be something between five or 10 pounds, depending on the establishment that you're in. No matter how great the home packed lunch you take, it's unlikely to have cost that much money. Now, if you are spending, let's say 10 pounds a day in an outlet, that's 50 quid a week. It's 200 pounds a month. That's it's a lot of money to be spending on fuel that doesn't fuel your body very, very well. My patients will take their home prepared packed lunch based on the principles you'll find in my book. And what they find is their colleagues who are tucking into the sandwiches will gaze at them in envy and always ask them, what have you got and all this? And they'll often end up sharing it with other people and so on. Because, you know, when you're eating something really delicious, like maybe you've taken in a dal with a little bit of natural yogurt, a really great, interesting salad with a, with a, with a great dressing. Maybe you've got some really interesting fruit to have afterwards and it hasn't cost you a tenner and it's really great and everyone in the office is jealous. So it's a win-win. Do you know when you actually put it like that? I actually was like, wow, that is a lot of money. 
I was like, that's 200 pounds a month. That is a grocery shop for a family of four for a month. It's a huge amount of money. And, you know, we're all feeling the pinch at the moment. Food prices going up and so on. So it's a far more economical way to eat, to make your own food and carry your own food, you know, especially when you're talking about being at lunch. You also mentioned, Preeti, you said, you know, I've only got half an hour between meetings. Don't waste 20 minutes going out somewhere queuing when you can whip this thing out of the coffee room fridge, you know, just tucked in in there first thing in the morning. Definitely. Thank you so much for breaking it down because that was so helpful for me. And I don't think I've ever learned that apart from like a year eight science lesson, which was like 10 years ago. It's a pleasure. I'm really glad that it shed some light on things. I like some of the other things that you're talking about was like emotional eating. Why do people emotionally eat? Well, it's a learned behavior. So very often it's learned really early on. We have a tantrum on the way home from school. So someone buys us a bag of sweets to settle us down or fall off the swings in the playground, go to the ice cream van, get get an ice cream. And this is done with the best of intentions. It's called emotional feeding. But we learn to soothe ourselves and our upsets with food. Why? Because it works temporarily. We have this part of the brain called the reward center. And when you eat an ice cream or a bag of sweets, you get this pleasure rush in the reward center. So to contextualize for your listeners, the reward center is the same part of the brain that gets excited if you take cocaine. But you're just thinking, well, I just had a bag of sweets. But the effect in the reward center is the same. So it's not surprising that when we've had a bad day, we're bored, we're tired, we're upset, something's bothering us, that just having that quick pleasure rush from, like you said, you know, chocolate or something else is completely, completely understandable. The other thing we have to bear in mind is that food is engineered to target the reward center. It's designed to give you a hit and a high, and it's designed to keep you coming back for more. For all those reasons, it's very understandable why we would use food to manage emotions, because food is emotional for a lot of people. And you might be able to follow this one-dimensional approach. I'm just simply changing the food that I eat. You might be able to do it for a week or a month. But in my experience, what happens, and this is also the case for people who even have weight loss, bariatric surgery, things like a gastric bypass, is that if you have not developed new strategies for managing your emotions in a way that does not involve food, you hit a bump in the road, bereavement, a divorce, a redundancy, you go back to soothing yourself with food. And we spoke so much about food, but to have like a fuller life or a full diet, it's not just food and exercise. There's so many more different components to it, right? Yeah. Food is one element of well-being. Absolutely. It's fuel. We all consume it. We all have that in common. And I say in the book, you know, there's this wonderful expression, let food be your medicine. That was what Hippocrates said about 3000 years BC. So food is important, but as he said, it's absolutely not the only thing. Movement is so important, daily movement. That doesn't mean going for a sprint or a jog. That might feel really off-putting for some of your listeners. But being active, not sitting all day, not being on the sofa all evening, not sitting with a screen all day, not using every opportunity when you're out to either take the bus or take the car or, you know, because some of us are moving very, very little. And I don't say that judgmentally. It's just the way that society and the landscape is set up. We can easily take the lift. Why should we take a couple of flights of stairs? But what your listeners will find, and my patients find this, is when you start to move, your body becomes a body that wants to move. So quite quickly, you see stairs lift. And you're like, I'm the kind of person who takes the stairs. And that feels really, really good. Because exercise is, I call it in the book, mind first aid. It's so important for your mood. And if you sit still for too long, people who, your listeners who have young children, who have looked after young children, they know that if kids don't get enough exercise, 
the sort of lose the plot, which is why schools have playtime, you know, in the timetable, you tip you out of the playground and you will run around. And as grown-ups, we don't have that built into our timetable, but I would definitely encourage your listeners to build that movement in the same way that kids have it in their day. Sleep is fundamentally important. And, you know, you were talking earlier about desi culture and desi foods and so on. And I know certainly in my family, late nights are just seen as really normal. And almost that that's our culture. That's, that's where we're from. We go to bed at midnight. We go to bed at one o'clock in the morning. We go to a wedding. It doesn't start till 10 p.m. sort of thing. <laughs> this might just be my family. It's quite a late night culture, I think, for many families. I don't know if you have that, Pretty. I don't know if your family are quite uh, are, are night owls. To be honest, I feel like my family is the exception of the rule because firstly, we're punctual all the time. No way. You are the exception. And also, honestly, like we all go to bed at 10 p.m. Like we have this rule where like downstairs shuts down and then my parents are like, do whatever you want to do in your rooms. We don't care. I love that. I say that to my kids too. And so again, really looking at your sleep, looking at what's holding up your bedtime, because I explain in the book just how fundamental sleep is, not just for your weight, but for your overall good health. You know, we have clocks in the body. In every single cell of our body, we have clocks. They need to be reset overnight by going to sleep. And if you don't sleep or you're sleep deprived or getting odd hours of sleep, clocks in your body go a bit haywire. That doesn't feel good because they should all be ticking at the same time, not one telling one time and one telling the other time. So we've really got to sleep. Sleep is so, so important to well-being. And then we come back to what you were saying about kindness, self-compassion, really working on that negative inner chatter all of us are susceptible to. All of these things coming together will, will give you that fuller life and that feeling that it just feels good to be you. I mean, I don't have a magic wand, um, but there are strong suggestions that many of my patients over the years have used to lead a life that feels much better than it did before they embarked on this program. And I think it's like, it's very like tailored to the person. Different things make different people happy. Like, honestly, I get so happy, like so easily. That's just me in general. Be like, the sun's out and I'll just be the most excitable person ever. <laughs> well, it's like different people just need different milestones. I think a lot of times we kind of try and put stuff in boxes, but sometimes stuff like this, it isn't like a one fits all situation because we're all so different and we're unique. Absolutely. And that's why my book is kind of so full. Because every chapter, as you know, is a different element of well-being, whether it's sleep or food or exercise or developing confidence or your self-esteem. But that allows people to personalize it. Because some people, as you say, like you said in your family, we don't have a sleep issue. Go to bed. We're really rigorous about that. That's great. So you might enjoy the science in the sleep chapter, but that's not something you need to sort of particularly take on board. There will be other chapters that particularly speak to you. And so in the same way my patients do, you will choose elements that are particularly important for your own situation because there can never be one size fits all for any intervention or treatment. It's not possible. Just finally, the one other thing that I want to touch on, honestly, I love, can I just say that we've been talking for so long and it does not feel like that at all? It doesn't feel, I've just looked at the clock. It absolutely doesn't feel that way. You're absolutely right. (laughs) You spoke about gut brain. And we talk so much around trusting your gut and your gut knows. You talk about the gut brain and I want to know more about it because I feel like it makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense, doesn't it? So I always say to my patients, I say, you've got two brains. What? 
that conversation going with that nice little opener. So we all know we've got a brain in our heads. That's pretty straightforward. We've got the second brain, the gut brain. So to put it in context for your listeners, your gut contains more nerve cells than your spinal cord. Your gut uses the same neurotransmitters or or chemical messengers that your brain does, things like serotonin. We've heard of the happy hormone. More serotonin in your gut than in your brain. So it's a really important sort of part of the nervous system. And it's one of the reasons why we feel emotions in the gut. So that you can physically feel emotions. I've got butterflies in my tummy. In the same way, it's so interesting that we express our emotions through food and eating in the gut. Exactly like you said, I've got a gut instinct. And you literally feel it in your gut, like whether I trust you or whether I should sign off on this thing. Or And people say, I've got, I've got too much on my plate or, you know, and they're feeling really overwhelmed by things. And it's quite interesting because people who have young children or look after young children or no young children will know that quite a lot of the time, if young children are unhappy or upset, they often don't have the kind of cognitive ability to say, I'm unhappy, I'm upset, I'm stressed, something's going on. They'll say, I've got a tummy ache. And even grown-ups will often get tummy aches when they're, when they're not feeling brilliant about something. So that's the gut brain. And what's interesting is that because we feel emotions in the gut, we can feel physically empty in the gut when, when we've had a bad day or something's not going right. And that's sort of a second cause, I think, of emotional eating in that we end up trying to fill up that emptiness, that gut emptiness with food. But the problem is, it's not physical lack of food. It's an emotional hunger. So no amount of food will address that, that need. And so I come up with strategies in the book to fill yourself up with things other than food. It's just a really important concept to recognize and then to work out how you can fill up, whether that's exercise or calling someone who makes you feel good, whatever it is. But the answer to emotional hunger felt in the gut is not going to be food. That is so interesting. And it's like, yeah, like you said, like you trust your gut or your gut knows. And now it's because there's a legit brain in it. There's nerves and there's a science behind it. Absolutely. Yeah. Your gut was right all along. (laughs) Syrah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a blast to talk to you. It's been honestly my privilege. And the full diet is now available to buy. So where can people buy it? Yeah, they can buy it online. They can buy it in bookshops. It's available in loads of supermarkets as well. So it's, it's very, very widely available. I would be absolutely thrilled and honoured if, if your listeners wanted to buy the full diet. I have so enjoyed talking to you. As you say, I cannot believe the time has flown by. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for your brilliant questions. No worries. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm always curious to know your thoughts. So you can send me an Instagram DM at pretty personal or email me at it's pretty personal at gmail.com. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, like it's always great to write your thoughts in the review box down below. Don't forget to follow and subscribe because new episodes will be downloaded straight into your podcast library. So you don't even need to worry about it. So yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye.